Not so long ago, in a land not so far away, it was 1999 and NRL Grand Final referee Bill Harrigan is standing in the midst of the largest rugby league crowd in history, patiently awaiting the decision of video referee Chris Ward. As he waits, he sees the medics attending to the knocked-out Craig Smith and a realisation sets in. He is about to make one of the biggest calls that's ever been made in rugby league history. In this special episode of the podcast, book two of Almost Fairy Tales, we explore the 1999 St. George Illawarra Dragons and their almost fairy tale in one of the greatest grand finals in the history of rugby league. Join us as we build a rugby league community for all. The Rugby League Republic podcast starts right now. Welcome to episode 160 of the Rugby League Republic podcast, where we aim to bring you the everyday fans' perspective on the greatest game of all, Rugby League. This is Rugby League for the people, and uh, I'm your co-host, Dr. T, and joining me is Tish. Tish, this is book two of Almost Fairy Tales. Uh, Are you looking forward to this one? I'm looking forward to this one. It's two teams that... Uh, don't barrack for, um, but it was an ama- absolutely amazing grand final, really, and um, and uh, quite memorable as well. Because you know, I'm thinking about 2003, 2002. I can't remember those grand finals, but 99 grand final. I think it's one that a lot of people remember. Um, maybe just for the one reason, but it's been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, look, this is about almost fairy tales. I know we're focusing on the grand final, but. It is because uh, it was a very climactic grand final, obviously, and uh, you know it was so close for the St. George Illawarra Dragons. Wasn't to be. Spoiler alert, everyone. Um, they didn't win that one, but that's the whole point of this. So, Tish, uh, how about we launch into it? And how about we start by reminding people what this uh, what this series is about? Okay. All right. Great. So, look, just before we begin, um, this is a reminder. This is almost. This is the Almost Fairy Tale series. Uh, each episode, we are calling these books, and it will involve an exploration of a rugby league fairy tale that almost came true but didn't. Um, we explore what the key turning points were, what went wrong, as well as the aftermath uh, of these fairy tales. So, in our second book, we're going to explore uh, the 1999 St. George Illawarra Dragons who made history by just even making it to the grand final. But they had an absolutely amazing grand final that was won by the Melbourne Storm, which was uh, which was also historic in its nature. Yeah, and look, before we begin, uh, let's just explain the way we structure these podcasts, uh, this, this series. So, look, each fairy tale, roughly speaking, has about, you know, a six-stage or chapter structure. So each of these we're going to sort of align with uh, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so chapter one is usually the exposition. This is where we kind of set the scene. Then there's a turning point. That's chapter two. Chapter three is the rise in action. That's where we're kind of uh, leading to the, the climax of the story. Chapter four is the climactic moment and there usually is a moment in rugby league fairy tales where where you know where history turns on its head 
Uh, chapter five is the fall in action, and this is kind of the immediate aftermath of the climactic action. Usually, usually uh, uh, not a good sign for those who, who have an almost fairy tale. It's always a sad occasion when they lose a grand final. And and chapter six really is resolution, or really the aftermath, uh, where we discuss you know years later usually uh, what is the what is the aftermath of that. Uh, of that almost fairy tale, what impact has that had on on the game and on these clubs? Uh, and look, we're going to use this six tackle structure, really six fairy tales chapters, six tackles uh, throughout these uh, this almost fairy tale podcast series. But look, without further ado, let us begin the almost fairy tale story for today. Here is book two, the nineteen ninety nine Saint George Illawarra Dragons, chapter one. <music> All right, chapter one is exposition, the 1999 St. George Illawarra Dragons and the 1999 NRL season. So, look, the 1999 NRL season was the 92nd season of uh, professional rugby league in Australia, um, and and it, it came after quite a lot of turmoil, as we've spoken about in the past, the uh, ARL Super League war. Uh, you know, was uh, was pretty rampant in in just a few years before this, uh, and and the NRL era, as we're starting to call it now, uh, when the reunification of the game happened in 1998, uh, with the emergence of the National Rugby League, the NRL, uh, and this was its second year. So uh, you know, after after the Broncos had won it in 98. What we had was, uh, you know, a period of still a lot of turmoil. You had, uh, in 99, you had no more Adelaide Rams, uh, no more Gold Coast Chargers, uh, and you had a, a merger of two clubs. One, in fact, one of the most historic clubs uh, in rugby league history, and in fact, still the record holder for the most number of professional, uh, uh, the biggest consecutive, uh, you know, championship wins in a row which is the St George Dragons and they merged with the Illawarra Steelers to to make the St George Illawarra Dragons um, there were 17 teams competing for the NRL premiership during the 99 season and uh, that culminated in the first ever grand final to be played in what was then called uh, Stadium Australia or others uh, would would know it as the uh, the site of the Sydney 2000 Olympics, basically, uh, and uh, and so the '99 St George Illawarra Dragons, like I said, was the first in the newly formed joint ventures club's history. Uh, the club was coached, or the team was coached by David Waite and Andrew Farrar, and captained by Paul McGregor, and they competed, uh, and they competed in that uh, in the 1999 Telstra Premiership. And they finished uh, the regular season in sixth place out of 17. And of course, the Melbourne Storm uh, were created uh, on uh, on 19 in 1998. So this was the Melbourne Storm's second season. And uh, and yeah, Tish, uh, any other any other setting the scene that we need to do here? Okay, well, we'll just do um, yeah. Look, I followed up from from what you were saying. Um, yeah, look, St George Illawarra, very um, very interesting merger that actually took place uh, between these two. It was the very first joint venture in uh, in the NRL. I mean, um, so they were they were the first ones to do it. Um, basically, St George had the money, um, from what I've researched, where but they had a shrinking junior base, 
Whereas, you know, the Illawarra Steelers were pretty much penniless and even um, even had, uh, you know, different organizations try to buy them out because they weren't going to go past the 99 season. They were going to run out of catch. So they desperately needed somebody to come in and they had a huge junior base. So it kind of made sense for these two teams to merge. Um, the squad, the 99 squad is actually quite interesting as well because um, there was actually no players apart from, there was no players that they bought from any other team. So the team was completely made up of Illawarra players and St. George players um, from the two entities. Um, there was actually, uh, from from the 20-man sort of lineup, um, there were 12 from each. And then there was Warren Carney. Warren Carney was the only player not to play for St. George or Illawarra in 1998. He actually played for nobody because he made his debut in 1999 for St. George Illawarra. Um, and uh, he went on to play four games in total uh, for <laughs> in the NRL. So uh, wow. there you go, Warren Carney. Yeah, and uh, the other team was the West Tigers, which is uh, another merged team. So that's interesting. Um, and look, the Dragons, uh, you know, the other thing about the Dragons, they actually... Uh, they, they didn't get off to a really good start. They lost their first two games. I think they actually lost the opening game of the season uh, against Parramatta in front of, um, at that time, the largest crowd in rugby league history. Um, so their first game and their last game were both in front of more than 100,000 people uh, You know, in rugby league. That's That's got to be an achievement right there, doesn't, doesn't it not? Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, if I remember correctly, I think I was at that game as well. So that was the uh, the oh, opening. I was at that game. I should remember that, but yeah, that, that's right. They did lose the first one against Parramatta. Uh, it was, I think, if I remember correctly, it was like, a, did you say it was one hundred four thousand and something? So it, yeah. it was something like that. Yeah, it was definitely over a hundred thousand. Uh, and uh, and you're right, it was at the time, right? It was then the record holder, I believe, at the time. I think you're right. Um, yeah, obviously, and we're going to talk later, it was to be broken by the grand final of that year. But, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead about the uh, the, the Dragons uh, season. Okay, yeah, great. And then so a couple other things. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the year, uh, they, uh, you know, they kind of, um, well, they beat, uh, yeah, they moved into the top eight uh, for the first time in round seven uh, by destroying Canberra 44 points to two. Now, Canberra is a, a team that only a few years ago had actually won the grand final. So the fact that they were able to turn it around so quickly in the season was was uh, amazing. Uh, and plus, they beat Melbourne twice during the season. Um, you know, in the first week of the finals, they beat them 34 points to 10 at Olympic Park, uh, refereed by Bill Harrigan, which is... Uh, Interesting, and we'll come to that later. And then earlier in the season, I think they also beat them in Melbourne again, but that time was 28-16. to 16. So, um, yeah, St. George having a great season, and everybody was obviously expecting them to do uh, to, to, to do really well in the grand final, and uh, we shall see what happened. All right, so uh, shall we move on to Chapter 2? Chapter 2, we- indeed. All right, Chapter 2 is the turning point, and this was the grand final itself. And look, uh, the grand final was between the Melbourne Storm and uh, the St. George Illawarra Dragons, of course. And I think it's fair to say that as far as a grand final lineup goes, uh, and perhaps it wasn't it wasn't really thought of this way at the time, but looking back now, uh, you know, it was pretty much, you could, you could say it was a bit of a, a, a grand final that sort of signalled or heralded the battle of the future of rugby league because we had there, 
you know, the the jewel in the crown of uh, the expansionist clubs, the Melbourne Storm, and the jewel in the crown of of the mergers, which was St. George Laura. And so both of these two heavyweight teams, uh, at the time, look, they came out of nowhere. They had no prior prior history in terms of uh, recent grand finals. So there was no reason to expect, you know, last time that St. George had been in a grand final was 93 and they lost that one to the Brisbane Broncos. And I think it's fair to say that a whole kind of, there were some players who were there from the 93 grand final losses, but you, you could fairly say that there was a bit of a generational shift that had occurred in those six years. So, you know, the battle for the future of rugby league, the mergers versus the expansionist new pioneering clubs is really what this was about. Um, and so, like, uh, as I said, uh, you know, the Melbourne Storm were in its second year of existence, technically the St. George Illawarra Dragons in the first year of its existence, the Storm having finished the regular season in third place, St. George Illawarra Dragons in sixth place, although, as you said, the, the St. George actually flogged Melbourne in the first week of the finals. Um, and so, uh, you know, by the time they got through the end of the final series, they had, uh, you know, all the rest of the top eight had been eliminated and only those two remained. And and look, the grand final itself was a battle for the ages in front of a still current world record crowd, uh, rugby league crowd of 107,999. If only that other person made it to make it an even 108,000. <laughs> what a wow. shame. What a shame. We, we got so close. But anyway, um, uh, at Stadium Australia, as I said, uh, and look, in, in comparison, we're talking about, you know, 67 more thousand more people than uh, turned up the year before at the Sydney Football Stadium in the 98 NRL Grand Final between uh, Canterbury and Brisbane. So, uh, look, not only did it break the record for Grand Final attendance, it eclipsed every uh Every every crowd, as far as we know, uh, in in rugby league history, so a momentous occasion. The stage was set, and uh, and and yeah, one of the other things that that was kind of interesting uh, was that this was the last time that they would present the Clive Churchill Medal uh, for the the man of the match at, in the grand final. The last time they would present it in a case, and from then on. Uh, again, what the youngsters won't, won't remember or won't know is that from now what we're used to is that they all get the ring, the, the medal around their neck, uh, which is similar to what they do in you know a lot of other sports and AFL, etc., uh, in terms of the grand final winners, uh, including the Clive Churchill medal. But this time uh, was the last time that they presented it in a case, which is what they used to do, uh, you know, uh, an official-looking case, no doubt, uh, made out of oak wood or something really fancy. But, uh, but yeah, so that was the last time they did that. And, look, the other thing that's interesting is the 99 grand final uh, was also very relevant because of the very classy pre-match entertainment, which oh, yes. featured Hugh Jackman singing Australia's yep. national anthem. Uh, you know, and, look, I think at the time people were thinking, "What's Wolverine doing up there?" But no, uh, he was—he's uh, a legit, uh, a legit musical uh, cabaret singer, star, yeah. Tony Award winner, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, Australia got a bit of a treat that day uh, with a yeah. huge crowd, a great game, and uh, it was all kicked off with yep. a Hugh Jackman uh, performance. So, Tish, what else was uh, great about that grand final? 
Okay, well, uh, lots of things that were great about that grandfather, but um, you, you mentioned uh, Wolverine. Why is Wolverine singing? But, of course, nobody would have known that that's actually Wolverine because um, Wolverine was – well, the first X-Men movie was released in the 13th of July, 2000. So this is Hugh Jackman, pre-Wolverine. That's that's a gem right there. Yes. Unbelievable um, from Wolverine. And look, what I think about Hugh Jackman, if you actually go, you can actually watch the entire game as we speak on YouTube, uh, on the NRL NRL, uh, uh, channel. And uh, what you'll notice about Hugh Jackman is he's kind of like the Wally Lewis of the acting world. And what I mean by that is that uh, Wally Lewis, if you have a look at him in the 1970s, in the 1980s, the 1990s, and even till today, he looks the exact same age. And <laughs> he's ageless, timeless. He's t- ageless and timeless. I'm sure Wally Lewis was born um, with a mustache uh, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he feels like he's never aged, right? And the same thing you could say about Hugh Jackman, right? Um you know, Hugh Jackman looks exactly like he looks now, what he did when he was singing that anthem. So, unbelievable stuff for, from uh, Hugh Jackman. Another very interesting thing is that, um, you know, uh, you know the, the great Australian airline company, Ansett, was actually the uh, grand final um, uh, major sponsor. So, it was actually the Ansett Australia Anaral Grand Final. So um, as soon as you see that, it kind of uh, it kind of uh, it kind of throws you off a bit. One other thing that kind of threw me off a little bit, kind of not that related to uh, to to uh, you know I suppose to the grand final was that um, Steve Roach was actually on commentary for Channel Nine, and I and I thought that he had already left Channel Nine, so it was kind of interesting that I think this might have been his last uh, broadcast for Channel Nine. Um, so so that was interesting. Wow. Another thing that was uh, you talked about the the rec- the crowd. Well, this is the only the second time in history that the NRL uh, Grand Final had an attendance that was bigger than the AFL Grand Final for that year. Um, oh, wow. So that was that's a very big deal, you know. And uh, so Georgie Lawara were red hot fav- favorites at a dollar forty five to to win. Um, nine of the seventeen players from for the St George team were actually from the Illawarra side of the merger. So that's quite interesting as well, how kind of where the bulk of the good plays actually came from the Illawarra side. Um, and also nine of the 11 previous grand finals included a non-Sydney team uh, with eight of the 11 winners actually being that team from outside Sydney winning it. So there was a lot of, um, you know, kind of, uh, it was it was all leading up to this sort of moment, as you said, the two, the, the two different things, the Super League, representative team versus the ARL representative team. And and I suppose the, the Sydney, you know, the team with the Sydney connection versus, you know, a team that's sort of outside of Sydney, it, it's kind of like the end of the end of the millennium, uh, you know, kind of had the, you know, kind of the, the it's almost like the last battle of, of the Super League war in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, not the least of which is the fact that a fully News Limited owned club, Melbourne Storm, yes. <laughs> uh, had made it for the first time, uh, you know, so so that's amazing. But look, let's let's dive into the actual lineups before we get into the game itself. So, uh, you know, again, bit of a blast from the past. We're talking a good 20, 21 years ago. 
uh, yep. this uh, this game took place. So some of these names will be familiar, and uh, and some will be familiar, but in an unfamiliar context. So let's just roll through. So uh, I'll go through the Melbourne Storm one first. Uh, and look, we got the fullback Robbie Ross. Uh, wingers were Craig Smith and Marcus By. Uh, the centres were Aaron Mule and Tony Martin. The halves and or well, the five eighth was Matt Geyer, Mark Geyer's brother. And um, Brett Kamali was a halfback. And in the front row, uh, sorry, in, in the forwards, we had Locke Tawara Nikau. And uh, second row was Paul Marquette and uh, Stephen Carney. And in the props, we had Rodney Howe and Glenn Lazarus at captain. And Richard Swain was a hooker. And on the bench, we had Matt Ruer, Russell Borden, Ben Rorty, Danny Williams. And the team was coached by Chris Anderson. Tish, do you want to go through the St. George Illawarra Dragons lineup? Yep. Okay. Well, fullback was Luke Patton. Um, and on the wingers was Jamie Ainsco and Nathan Blacklock. Uh, the centres were Paul McGregor and Sean Timmons. Uh, McGregor, uh, the captain of the St. George Illawarra Steelers. Um, Five-eighth was the man, Anthony Mundine. Halfback was Trent Barrett. And I think that was his first or second year. Um uh, the props were Craig Smith and and Chris uh, Levercole, I think it is. Likevol. Likevol. Likevol, that's it. And then um, second row is Lance Thompson, Thompson Darren Tracy. Uh, hooker is uh, Nathan Brown. And the lock forward being Wayne Bartram. Now, the bench is a young Craig Fitzgibbon, Rod Wishart, um, and this was his retirement game. Uh, Brad McKay, and this was his retirement game as well. Colin Ward and uh, David Waite was the coach. Um, well, I think they were. I think his assistant coach was Andrew Farrah, but I believe that was it was more of a, a dual coaching setup rather than a um, than a. Uh, than I think you're right. Like a yeah. co- co-coaching, yeah. But I think so, it was. So he was definitely known as a head coach. That's for sure. That, that's right. So now one thing very interesting about this, another little sort of uh, fact about or kind of bit of trivia about this game is that there's there's actually two Craig Smiths playing in this game uh, on opposite ends. So um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, which which is like basically really unusual. Like how, how do you sort of get something like that? And, um, you know, there's actually quite a lot of future NRL coaches in this uh, in, in these lineups as well. Um, you know, Stephen Kearney, Nathan Brown, uh, McGregor, Trent Parrott. Um, so, yeah, kind of a, a very interesting lineup as well. So, yeah. And, and let's not forget, was there also a uh, – w- well, was he a senator? What was he? Was he an MP? Well, he was a <laughs> – he was a one-nation candidate, that's for sure. Or no, no, he was a Clive Palmer – what's it called? United Party – Australia United Party candidate. Glenn Lazarus, I'm talking about. Yeah. That's so, right. That's right. So, so – yeah, very interesting, you know. Yeah, awesome. So, look, those were the lineups, and and look, I think it's fair to say that you know no one was underestimating Melbourne. I mean, you know, in Glenn Lazarus, you you've got someone who had basically already won and spearheaded. I think it's fair to say, you know, had been the the best front rower in the world pretty much for most of his career. He'd spearheaded the Canberra Raiders to their first ever premiership. He then spearheaded uh, the uh, the Broncos, I believe, 
Uh, was that that was before this? Is that right? I think the Broncos. He'd already won yep. with the Broncos at some point. I, I'm not sure if he won. The, he won. Uh, he would have won in, in their first premiership at '92, I believe. So uh, I believe that's the case. So if that is the case, then uh, you know here we're talking about a two-time premiership winning, winner with two different clubs, where he was one of the main reasons for them winning. And he was captain of this team. So I think no one was uh, taking this team lightly, least of all uh, a team with the experience of St. George Illawarra Dragons. As you said, you know, um, you've got players like Nathan Brown and Paul McGregor there. And you also you've got Mundine who'd, who'd played, uh, you know, been quite around quite a bit in the 90s as well. So very, very strong lineups on both sides. Uh, and look, let's get into Chapter 3 and uh, the game itself. So here we go, Chapter 3. Rising Action is Chapter 3, A Tale of Two Halves. Look, um, look. in summary, <laughs> basically this was A Tale of Two Halves. The Dragons, yep. it was all the Dragons in the first half. They went up, uh, you know, 14-0, and they had a converted try and a penalty goal to Craig Fitzgibbon and a converted try to Nathan Blacklock. Uh, and... And I guess I guess the thing is that in you know there was a point there where they looked like running away with it. They were already like you know fourteen up, fourteen nil up in in a grand final is is pretty much like you know you, you've you've almost got all the nails on the coffin of your opposition, mm. and they had a chance to uh, uh you know to to really you know, kill off the storm's chances. And unfortunately, Anthony Mundine knocked on over the try line early in the second half. Now, you kind of think this is actually the danger for teams that are ahead because they 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 kind of do relax a bit and become complacent. And here is an example of where if if that try had been scored, um, you know, if, if there was a bit more discipline within the rest of the team as well to kind of put the foot on, on the pedal, um, then you know this this could have actually led to a bit of a blowout, but as it turns out, the uh, the the knock on over the try line meant no try, and and then all of a sudden Melbourne find themselves in the game uh, with a few tries to Tony Martin and Ben Rorty, uh, and then Craig's their winger Craig Smith <laughs> kicking two penalty goals uh, or or two uh, you know after that as well. So. Um, but yeah, so basically, a tale of two halves. You had the dragons uh, all over the shop, all over it in halftime, uh, and uh, the storm mounting somewhat of a comeback. But again, through some complacency on the Illawarra, the St George Illawarra Dragons side. Tish, you saw the game again, uh, watching it again. Now, I, I got to say, my my little before I throw it to you, I just sort of, uh, I should say, I was at this game. I was there in person. I was one of the, you know, probably 107,999 or whatever it was people. And, uh, you know, it was an amazing atmosphere. And the the buzz, the buzz at this grand final uh, outside was just unbelievable. Uh, and I've got to say that, yeah, it was very, very noisy, put it that way. Um, I know mm. we don't talk about the noise that much in at that stadium, I think the dimensions of it, obviously, of that stadium had changed after the uh, the Sydney Olympics, and I think that does a lot to the acoustics of of the venue. But I remember at the time thinking it is so loud, 
Um, and obviously people were very excited. It was uh, two fresh new teams in the Premiership decider. But Tish, uh, having looked at that, looked at the game again uh, on uh, on YouTube or NRL.com, uh, you know, what did you think about about the game leading up to obviously the the final climactic moments that we're going to talk about in a minute? What was your overall impression of uh, of the intensity of the game? Okay, well, look, it was definitely a great atmosphere, and even um, you know twenty. 20- one years on um going back watching the footage you could actually still feel i mean yes it does date like you know the as i said answered australia doesn't exist anymore so you know there are things like that where you kind of like you know it's kind of like a, a bit of a different world um you know but but ultimately though you, you the atmosphere you could still feel it and you could still feel the buzz particularly in the second half you know the first half the dragons were super dominant they scored some you know, scored some great tries uh, and there were some great moments, but really in the second half when Melbourne were coming back, um, it was you know it was very very exciting to watch. That's what I've got to say. And uh, you felt the buzz, um, you f- you felt a big buzz in the game. Um, you know at the start of the second half there was it was actually you know an arm wrestle back and forth and both teams were making 60 70 meters either side um and they were spreading the ball passing the ball quite a lot i think melbourne were very conservative in the first half but in the second half they obviously had a plan to shift the ball and it was working well um their forwards were a lot more aggressive as well um the second phase play and the round the back plays that we kind of have uh today we're not really there, in, you know, in 1999. There was, you know, the, the style of play was a bit different to what we have at the moment. It, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, rugby league has evolved since then, but it's still a very exciting style to watch. And it is something that captivates you when you actually watch, uh, you know, the, the way the teams pass. Um, you know, there's six or seven passes per play, and that's basically how teams were, were getting um, forward, you know, 1999. Well, these two teams anyway. So that was, that was interesting. Um, Craig Fitzgibbon uh, comes off the bench um, and scores the first points. Um, I believe that was actually his first touch of the game as well. And I think it was only his fourth or fifth game in the NRL. So that was a huge thing for him. And um, another little tidbit that Ray Warren did mention is that his father was the inaugural coach of the Illawarra Steelers. So, um, you know, kind of a, a bit of a, uh, you know, uh, the history sort of goes around where, you know, his son ends up scoring the very first try in the biggest stage that Illawarra had ever had at that time. Um, you know, then also the Nathan Blacklock try from St. George is an absolutely amazing try. It um, It's one of these tries when you, when I watched it, I kind of forgot about this try. You kind of don't remember this try, but you actually see it and you, it's one of the greatest tries ever. And you kind of wonder, I don't think Blacklock ever played for New South Wales or nor did he play for Australia or anything like that. But he was an amazing player, an amazing winger and such an X-Factor type player that that was, uh, that was great to absolutely watch um, that. Uh, the other thing that I did pick up on was uh, some really interesting comments from Ray Warren during the game. Um, so, so at one point he did say that the NRL is not quite national yet, but it is close as it's ever been. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, about, didn't we just lose Adelaide and Perth? Um, like, we're, we're, like, how are we closer? Aren't we a little further away from being national? Um, mm. He did also he did also mention that um, 
Jamie Ainsco was actually named Dragons Player of the Year, <laughs> which was uh, hilarious considering what is about to happen. Um, and then this, oh man, this this was like this was classic. So I'm not too sure because Lance Thompson was taking a hit up. And Ray Warren, this is basically what he says, and I don't know if he's talking about Lance Thompson or himself, but basically what I, the way I interpreted what he said was um, Lance Thompson received an email from the people of Japan. They were upset that they weren't mentioned last week in Ray Warren's commentary. So um, I have no idea what he was talking about. And, uh, you know, 21 years on, it's still a mystery. Like so, but there you go. So it was very, very, very interesting game. But like, you know, uh, yeah. But yeah, that, as you said, the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. And um, you know, it's funny when you go back and watch these games. You kind of, uh, you feel like you. I feel like I didn't really watch the game as closely as what I did all those years ago because I kind of feel like I'm. I probably enjoyed it more watching it now than what I did at the time. At the time, I didn't really think it was that uh, crazy up until the end. You know. So, but it was really exciting. Yeah, look, uh, I, I'd have to agree with that. Look, and I think, <clears throat> I guess one of the things that, especially in grand finals, as we, we when we spoke about this last time, and anytime we speak about grand finals, there there is definitely this thing about, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something when you watch games, uh, you know, back years later, you do sort of, sometimes you get a different perspective because you've seen the game evolve to what it is now and, and you kind of look at it through a different lens. But, uh, but the other thing is that often our memories of these things are made up of like moments during these games, not necessarily, you know, overall it was a good game or whatever. You know, we talk about like the 2016 grand final, uh, sorry, the, was it the 2015 or 2016 grand final? The, the Cowboys, um, the Cowboys, you know, win against the Broncos. Uh, Looking back, people will, you know, a lot of people will think about the moments and, and the, the absolutely incredible finish of those games, but of, of that game in particular, but, I look at it as I don't think the intensity of the game or the quality of the game prior to that sort of warranted it it being elevated as a legendary type game. It finished very well, but it wasn't I don't think it had that level of intensity as some some other games. And I think the thing is people remember moments. They remember things and they they think that the entire game was like this. This is a kind of game though that it was very intense. It had a state of origin type mm. feel to it. But there were still some moments, and you talked about the Blacklock try, and I think that was one, to me, that was one that was, uh, you know, it, it, w- it would have been a great kind of, uh, great for the highlights reel had they actually won this game because yeah. it was it was a, it was the kind of, like I said, it was almost the final nail in the coffin just before half time to push them out to 14-0. And and basically, it it I believe it sort of came out of uh, that it came off a off a bounce of a ball, and he just ran onto it and split yep. split the entire field and and ran you know the length of the field pretty much. It felt like anyway, um, mm. and and so it was one of those like blink and you miss it. Uh, you know, like if they, if you remember those those kind of uh, things in the newspaper where you know find the missing ball, where's the ball, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's it's that kind of thing. Like if you blinked, you would have missed the fact that he he burst onto the ball and it got there before everyone else, and just uh, you know it, it was like a lightning had gone past them, and that's what happened. Absolutely. And it was just a magical. Uh, you know, it brings back memories of you know 
uh, people like John Ferguson from like several, you know, a decade earlier with the Canberra Raiders, yeah. you know, in terms of the speed of people like that uh, who, who you know, bring their A game to the grand final. And this is, that was an A a grade, A, a game kind of grand final moment. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, what we're about to talk about is another moment, but it went against the St. George Illawarra Dragons. So let's go on to Chapter 4, which is the climax. Here we go. All right, Chapter 4 is about the video referee keeps a cool head, ironically. Uh, or another <laughs> way to look at it, it was a game of inches. Uh, and look, we're talking about this moment that occurred with only three minutes to go. Uh, the storm forced the Dragons to a goal line dropout. Uh, Melbourne's halfback, Greg, Brett Kamali, uh got the ball, bombed it to Craig Smith's wing, and Dragon centre Jamie Ainscoe, anticipating a Melbourne try, caught Craig Smith in a head-high tackle over the try line. It resulted in Smith being knocked unconscious and in the process of falling to the ground, knocked the ball on. So at this point, referee Bill Harrigan requested the video referee. And remember, the video referee was an an innovation of the Super League uh, kind of era. And uh, the video referee at the time, Chris Ward, was adjudicating on the decision. And it was a controversial decision. So, uh, Tish, what happened there was, as we know, the Melbourne Storm were granted a penalty try, which made them go level with the Dragons. But because it was a penalty try, the conversion was to be taken directly in front of the post, which basically led to uh, the Melbourne Storm going 20-18 to 18 ahead by two points. Matt Guy was uh, the, converted the, the, uh, the points in front. And that was the first time in the match that the Storm were ahead of the Dragons on the scoreboard. And that's when it counted because a few minutes later, it was basically the end of an epic grand final. Tish, a very climactic moment. Uh, You know, if we remember the intro to this podcast where we set the scene of uh, one of the most momentous refereeing decisions of all time. A tough one to make, but, uh, you know, look, let's set the scene first and let's talk about the decision then, whether it was the right call. So, Tish, you rewatched it again. Uh, how, how you know, talk us through what your view was about uh, about what went down in those final few minutes. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. T, I'm not sure, was this the first year the video referee was actually... Um was actually used. I, I, I don't think in 1998 they had the video referee. I think it was brought into the game in 1999. Is, is that right? I'd have to double-check that, but I'm pretty sure that the... the uh, no, I, I get the feeling that Super League had it anyway uh, yep. during during uh, 97, potentially. But we can double-check that. But, yeah, it, yep. it wouldn't have been yep. around for very long. It was still a new innovation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, look, firstly, um, so... Yeah, when it happened, uh, you know, it, it happened really quickly, and I don't think the cameras quite caught it um, as it was happening. Um, although you did know something was up because Craig Smith was knocked out completely, um, concussed, head trauma, all the stuff that we know about with concussion, uh, you know, and uh, CTE and everything like that. Um, this was clear evidence of it out there because he was completely, completely knocked out. And then um, 
you know, and then so when you see the replay, you do see that it is it is a very spectacular head-high tackle, to be fair. Very vicious as well, um, you know, in slow-mo at least anyway. Uh, of course, um, you know, when we're trying – when you're trying to defend your line and try to defend, uh, you know, the uh, – you know, a try from scoring – you do see players doing some pretty outrageous things at times in desperation. Um, I don't think he was necessarily uh, sort of um, aiming for the head, but I think he was trying to stop the try and kind of did whatever he, he can, and it ended up being a head-high tackle from Jamie Ansko, who, as Ray Warren quite pointed out, was the Dragons Club Player of the Year. So kind of a, kind of a bit of a, a sad sort of ending there. And uh, look, they went to the video referee pretty much straight away, um, you know, there were players on either end arguing. And then the decision came down. And the interesting thing about the decision is uh, is Glenn Lazarus did actually ask, should it be an eight-point try? I think he does say that a couple of times. And you hear him say that, eight-point try, eight-point try. And this is where Harrigan does give that explanation, saying that he actually lost the ball um, you know, in the process of scoring the try. So, therefore, it is a penalty try. But in fact, if he would have held on to the ball, and he was actually very close of getting it down, if he would have held on to the ball, it potentially could have been an eight-point try, which would have even been well, it wouldn't have been as dramatic, but in a way, it kind of would have been very, uh, very trivial anyway. Because I don't think, I mean, at that time in my life, I don't think I'd ever saw a penalty try, let alone an eight-point try. But then, um, but there you have it. It was quite unbelievable. Um, so yeah, look, I think that in the end, um, yeah, back to your question, I think they did that make the right decision. Um, obviously, because you had, if we had the video, if the video refereeing technology wasn't there, uh, I'm not hundred percent sure whether this decision would have been made. Cause, cause you know, the, um, it happened so quickly that I don't think, uh, I, I don't think the human eye would have, would have caught it as, as good as what they did. So they made the right decision with the technology they had, but you know, if it was two years earlier, I think the judge might have got away with it. Yeah, you're right. Look, and and I think that's why it's important that it, it was the timing of it and and the fact that uh, you know it if you're right, if if uh under normal circumstances, uh it yeah. wasn't that it was necessarily it was it I guess it was quick, but it was also that uh the the key point here is that in order for you to decide whether um whether it's a try at all it is really about milliseconds, uh, yeah. and, and the decision is basically. And so the the point that you're making about Glenn Lazarus saying is it an, a penalty try or sorry is it an eight point try is 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 really key here because an eight point try is when you've scored the try anyway, and after you've scored the try, there's been foul play, so you get a penalty on top of your on top of your try. So that's where you can possibly get eight points because the idea is. You know, here we're talking about uh, from the sideline. If you convert it, you get six points. Then you get a, a, basically a gimme penalty right in front. That's eight points. But this was not that case. This was the case where no try had been scored. Therefore, it could, could not have been an eight-point try. Um, mm. It was about uh, the question of did uh, Craig Smith get fouled in the process of scoring a try? And did the foul uh, prevent the try from being uh, uh, scored where it, where it, 
where basically it's kind of it's a bit like the the burden of proof in kind of like a murder case. Is there reasonable doubt or beyond all reasonable doubt that this try would have been scored? And and from the replay and you know definitely the feeling when I was there at the ground was you could tell and obviously Jamie Ainsco had a bit of a, a reputation uh, anyway of being a bit of an enforcer and a bit of a rough player anyway. So none of those things were working in St. George Illawarra's favour. Um, you know, right. if they'd gotten, you know, maybe Nathan Blacklock or another player who'd who'd had a good record or a, you know, not not a not a, a reputation as being a rough player, uh, maybe maybe the you know maybe it wouldn't have even gone to the video referee. This is this is a thing is that that whatever doubt Bill Harrigan had, he decided to send it to the video referee. And uh, and it, in in the end, Chris Ward made the right choice because uh, you know in fouling Craig Smith, he basically prevented him from falling and basically uh, scoring that try. Now it's it's a it's a decision that needs to be it's a it's a, a probability thing, isn't it? At this point, because a try wasn't scored, so you have to sort of make a judgment call based on would this person have scored a try. If uh, if this guy didn't knock his block off, basically, and, uh, and and that's and that's what ended up happening. So so you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the video ref. It, I guess at this point, it would have been definitely the first time that it was used in such a, a critical point. You know, we're talking a couple of minutes before the end of a major major grand final, which was already intense enough as it is, and uh, it. It was the turning point. Had this not occurred, yeah. St. George Illawarra would have won the game. And it's okay. as simple as that. So um, okay. I, I do want to counter that a little bit because when you do actually go back and watch the second half, you do see that physically the Dragons are are gone. They yeah. are holding on for dear life towards the end. So, look, if this incident didn't occur, we, we obviously don't know, but, but I do believe that... Even if this incident didn't occur, I think Melbourne would have won the game anyway. Um, if oh, well, there was three minutes left, and they yeah, were yeah, with three minutes by, left, I think that's a tough call. With three, yeah, minutes maybe, to go. Yeah, maybe it is. It, maybe it is, but they they were definitely the team that were had the momentum. Um, they were really close to the line. This was a repeat set, um, so that was that was the other case. So, you know, they, they probably would have had. Um, you know, I, I just think that they they look like a better team towards the end of the game. Uh, yeah. So look, but obviously very disappointing for St George because um, you know they were they were leading for seventy seven minutes and you know the first half um, you know at halftime people could have I could I could imagine you know some of the hundred and seven thousand you know maybe going you know what the game's over it's in the bag let's go home you know let's beat the traffic because you know it was it was pretty one this one way in the first half and nobody thought that Melbourne would do anything in the second half let alone come back and, and win it in the way they did. So, yeah, but, it, yeah, but, but yeah, it, it is, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I think this is definitely the turning point of the game. Yeah, I can't really – well, the Anthony Mundine dropping the ball is a bit of a turning point as well, right? Because if he would have scored that try, then that would have probably closed it out for the Dragons as well. So, two of the real big moments of the game, definitely. Yeah, and both of them uh, not in favour of St George Illawarra, and I guess that's <laughs> that's the point. There is that usually, usually with multiple turning points, you, you would think, for instance, the Nathan Blacklock try was a turning point in their favour, but but really it was just momentum. And and as I said, I think 
you know, you could sort of see the turning point of, uh, of or at least I remember from on the day that, you know, the mundane kind of, uh, you know, missed opportunity was a turning point where the momentum had been all with the Dragons at that point. And from then on, it just went all towards the Storm. And you're right, the Storm were finishing strongly. And I, I guess even if Craig Smith hadn't even caught that ball, it's likely that the Storm would have given themselves another opportunity to score a try anyway. Uh, having said that, um, you know, it is it was a game of inches up to this point. And, and look, if Ainsco had not uh, knocked him out, it's possible that he may not have even held on to the ball uh, on his way because he was catching it from a bomb, so he was on his way down. Mm. And that's really the key point here. And, look, I remember at the time as well that it – even though he knocked his head off, it wasn't like uh, it, it didn't. It didn't seem at the time like it was. Uh, you know, you could almost argue that it was. Uh, he was kind of tackling him in the process of him kind of falling down anyway. Falling, yeah. But but that was. I mean, that wouldn't have been a very strong argument because of uh, you know the history of the player and and when you look at it, you, the end result means that you kind of err on the side of. It was probably a deliberate act for it to have become for him to have become unconscious. So, so yeah, a game of inches because what you don't know for sure, without any certainty, is that Craig Smith would have held on to that ball. Uh, you know, you see plenty of players uh, when they fall uh, from height and have a ball in their hand, the, the the ball bounces up and it bobbles out of their hands. So it's possible that this could have happened in this situation as well. But again. This is why uh, a penalty try in such a momentous occasion from a video referee is a critical, you know, highlight, I guess, of this game and and a critical moment in the game of rugby league because in the history of rugby league, uh, because ultimately it wasn't a try that was scored. It was a penalty try, meaning a decision was made that it was very likely a try would have been scored. And that had never really occurred uh, to settle uh, the you know to settle the result of a game ever and so that yeah. that uh, in, in terms of grand finals I mean so a huge huge climax uh, to discuss here but uh, look let's move on to the final chapter oh sorry the chapter five which is uh, fall in action so here we go chapter five so chapter five is about the Melbourne storm uh, you know being been declared the winners, winning that game 20 points to 18 after that controversy and once the final whistle blew. Uh, you know, uh, some very interesting, as you said, uh, trivia uh, points of trivia uh, and, uh, you know, points about this uh, Storm victory. They, were, they became the quickest expansion team to win a premiership um, and they won in their second season and they beat out... Uh, Canterbury, who won in 1938 in just their fourth season. So from time of inception to time of winning a premiership, this uh, has been the quickest ever. And I think it's never been uh, it's never been bested. So, uh, you know, it'll be a while before, uh, you know, a, another team of this uh, in this premiership uh, ends up getting that kind of beginner's luck in a way. So or, or beginner's success. Um, it was also the last game of uh, Glenn Lazarus. So he retired after this. Uh, so for him, it was a fairy tale. 
Um, and it was his fifth grand final rick victory, and he won, as I said, he won two with Canberra in 89-90, and then he left for Brisbane and won in 92-93. So, um, you know, a, a five-year period there where he won four grand finals with two different teams where he spearheaded both, and then there was a period of a six-year break before he helped the Storm win their first ever premiership. So, I mean, Glenn Lazarus, look, he's got to go down one day as uh, surely a, a, a possible immortal because, you know, he's, I think his, um, you know, he, his impact has been a bit underrated compared to other players that have come before him uh, and since him. But I think if you look at the results and how important he was to all of those premiership winning teams, uh, yeah, a, a really huge occasion. So yeah, Glenn Lazarus uh, did the uh, did the retirement march around the <laughs> retirement victory lap uh, after the game was done and dusted. And unfortunately for the Dragons, uh, you know it had been tough for them because they had lost their previous four visits to the grand final uh, all the way back to 1985 where they lost that one to Canterbury. They then lost two in a row, 92-93, to the Dragons, and then they lost in 96 to uh, Manly Warringah, uh, and they had not won a premiership since 1979. Uh, but obviously in, in the future, in the not-too-distant future, well, it was, it was about 10, 11 years after that, in 2010, they would return to a grand final, uh, which they ended up winning, and that was their first uh, premiership as a merged entity. So, yeah, so the, the summary of the game was uh, 20 points to 18, Melbourne with tries to Martin, Rorty, uh, and Smith, the penalty try. Uh, three out of the four goals to Smith and one out of one to Matt Geyer. And uh, Sir George Illawarra Dragons, we had three tries to Fitzgibbon, Blacklock, and McGregor. And three uh, goals, Bartram kicking two of them and Fitzgibbon kicking one of them. And uh, the Clive Churchill medal winner for best player on ground was Brett Kamali. And I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, I think he was really the difference between the two sides. He mm. he basically brought a level of uh, stability to the Melbourne Storm and, and game management. We talk about some of the great halfbacks. You know, he didn't really necessarily have, um, I guess you could say, uh, uh, highlights reel in this game. But what he did have was an ability to control the game. And when it mattered most towards the end, this is why you, you're saying that you get the feeling that they were, were going to win anyway because they had all the momentum going in their direction. And that has pretty much everything to do with Brett Kamali and and the way he kind of steered that team around um, and, and kept them dangerous, even though they were 14-0 down from half time. So... Um, so Tish, that was uh, you know my memory of the game, and afterwards was well. Even though I remember at the time I was barracking for the Dragons, but I remember thinking at the time, you know, this is a pretty huge deal that the Melbourne Storm won. Uh, it's going to be huge for the game down in Melbourne, and uh, and and it was uh, the, the the start of a new era in terms of NRL era rugby league. Uh, what were your thoughts? watching the game and, uh, you know, in terms of the overall summary of of the Melbourne Storm victory? Yeah, well, look, an absolutely amazing victory. Yes, as you pointed out, um, you know, uh, only winning only in their second season and what a way to start a franchise as well, um, to start a new team, 
uh, you know, particularly in a uh, in a in a uh, in a city that uh, you know has not been your traditional, uh, has not really had a traditional local competition as well. Um, Melbourne winning did a big thing for them. Obviously, you talked about the rating of six hundred thousand people. They had pretty good crowds there throughout the years, but I think the supporter base, um, you know, largely birthed this, this grand final victory. Really did put put them on the map in Melbourne, and I think it really helped them. Um, you have all the success that, that they sort of uh, went on to have. I know we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, you talked about Glenn Lazarus. Yeah, look, an amazing sort of statistic, really good in grand finals. Um, look, on the other side, it was also Rod Wishart's final game. It was Brad McCarr's final game and also Mark Coyne, who didn't play but was part of the St. George uh, Illawarra Dragons uh, for that season. They all retired. Uh, this was their last sort of farewell as well. So, Again, not the fairy tale that uh, that they had been wanting, um, you know, which is quite sad for for them. Um, yeah, uh, in terms of the summary, there is also uh, another piece of controversy which you know people uh, people kind of uh, have mentioned, which is you know the Mark guy. No, it was uh, one of the tries. I want to say it's the raw. Yeah, the raw uh, try uh, came off a forward pass from. From, from Gaia, and it is pretty, um, you know, when you go back and see it, definitely looks like a forward pass. And I think prior to that, there was a, a uh, you know, a sort of a similar sort of situation uh, try from St. George, which uh, was disallowed. And I think that was also another controversial, um, you know, sort of aspect that that uh, Dragons fans will uh, will sort of talk about. Um the other interesting thing is is that um, Craig Smith, you know, the Melbourne player who was knocked out, well, this was actually his last NRL game as well. Um, he rejected an offer in 2000 to play uh, again in the in the 2000 NRL season. So, you know, effectively the the player that won the game for Melbourne, the player that was injured, ended up never playing rugby league again. So it's very very quite a sad moment to that. Um, obviously, Jamie Ainsco continued to play. As well, uh, you know, throughout uh, after the game, Anthony Mundine did actually. Uh, I think it was several months later. Did say that uh, Melbourne were unworthy uh, winners of the grand final, and then in the following season, um, Melbourne did actually beat them seventy points to ten, which at the time was a record. Um, it could it could still actually um, stand today, actually. But yeah, absolutely crazy. And then of course, Anthony Mundine in two thousand quits, um, sensationally quits uh, rugby league to pursue a boxing career and, you know, quickly becomes one of, uh, you know, Australia's most uh, notable and probably, uh, you know, successful uh, boxers as well of all time. So, um, you know, a lot happened during this game as well. And, uh, you know, there was actually, uh, I probably forgot to mention this as well when we, when we started the season, you know, this was actually uh, Alan Langer as well, uh, you know, announced his retirement, this you know, in that year. Um, of course, you heard that North Sydney would fold at the end of the year. Their their hopes as well for um, you know having that team in the Central Coast. You now Balmain and West, uh, you know, decide in '99 to become a uh, a joint venture club as well. And I think at the end of this season, South Sydney were also removed from the competition as well, controversially. And obviously, they will come back. So a lot of things happened in '99, and this was uh this was interesting. And um, uh, it's you know, another little piece of trivia is um, we're going to party like it's 1999. 
uh, is is you know sung by Prince, who's known for uh, for purple. And what colours do Melbourne wear? Purple. Wow, purple, purple rain, of course. Purple the rain, rain in the Melbourne storm. Wow. Yes. There's another link. Jeez, I'd never really <laughs> thought of that. Tisha freaking me out, man. This is a this is a monumental, coincidental, or is it uh, a conspiracy? Who knows? But look, yeah. Let's uh, let's go on to our final tackle, which uh, or our final chapter of this almost fairy tale, the resolution. Here we go. All right, chapter six, the final chapter. It's the resolution, the aftermath, and this is where we say that, look, a grand final, uh, in my view, that catapulted the NRL into the future. Um, that 99 grand final was important in so many ways, even beyond uh, <laughs> beyond the the Prince uh, connections that you just made there. Um because in my view, I think it signaled that the NRL had arrived as a sport embracing the future. So after the reunification of the game, after the Super League War, this was, I guess, the first time it really put itself on the map uh, in that way as a reunified sport. Um, it was the first ever grand final involving a merged uh, or joint venture team uh, and ha- who happened to be in its first year. It was the quickest grand final uh, win by an expansion team, Melbourne, in its second year. It was the largest ever rugby league audience, uh, the world, world record of 107,999 that still stands to this day. Uh, as a game, I think the grand final and the win established the game in Melbourne more than anything else. Um, you know, the reports were that at the time the grand final attracted a television viewership of over 600,000 in Melbourne, which is humongous. Um, and obviously at the time was a traditional Australian rules football stronghold. Um, to me, it kind of established the, the a culture of success at the Storm. You know, you don't, you don't start a franchise with a win within its second year and not kind of set that as an expectation from every year going forward. Uh, you know, where do you go when you succeed in winning a premiership in your second year of existence? Well, to me, what the consequence is, is that it sets the scene for a bit of a win-at-all-costs culture that, in my view, directly led to the largest level of corruption and salary cap cheating in the code's history. Um, so, Tish, let me just break a bit and get your thoughts on that kind of uh, theory or that perspective on the fact that this being, uh, you know, in summary, this being kind of a, a, such an early success for the Melbourne Storm's history, you know, sets the tone of of a winning culture. And I think what that does is, you know, years down the track, not well, not, not too far down actually, uh, you know, less than a decade from this point, in fact, or it was a decade from this point, in fact, that where they won their last premiership before they were busted for the biggest salary uh, cap cheating uh, series of events in, in, in the code's history and and really kind of put a dampener on their, their decade of success up until that point. Uh, but, yeah, in my view, I think I think the success, this win, the kind of catapulted them to that, that point where, it, it just all of a sudden they were successful. Melbourne, everyone knew who they were, uh, all that kind of thing. And uh, it was definitely important for the game to have a successful Melbourne team. But I guess the question is, having them successful this early, it might have actually caused them to, uh, you know, 
caused a, a bit of a difficult and rocky future for them. Uh, what do you think about that theory, Tish? Yeah, look, I think you're I think you're right in in, in some ways because. Once you have early success, then, you know, it's like having a hit single, you know, like the knack, you know, the one-hit wonders, right? Once you've won once, once you've, once you've got a big moment, you know, you, there is expectation, there's growing expectation then to continue to repeat that, right, which brings that pressure on. And then, you know, you're also uh, battling, you know, so much other content, sporting content uh, in the place where, you know, where in the place that you reside. So, that also adds to the pressure that I'm sure the administrators, the coaching staff, the entire Melbourne team probably had. You know, previously to that, if you actually look at their lineup, apart from Glenn Lazarus, I think um, Tiara Nicole was the only other player who had actually played in a grand final previously. So, um, and really, you know, um, a lot of these players had sort of come from other Super League teams that had folded. Um, you know, I think some of these players came from the Hunter Mariners and, and from Perth and, and various places like that, so they weren't really a um, they weren't really sort of household names yet. Uh, a lot of these players, so um, they are, they go on to become that um, because of of just the way the the coaching is. So I think it was one of those things um, where you know that that pressure comes uh, there as well. Um, their coach Chris Anderson, um, you know, I suppose we haven't really talked too much about the coaches here, but Chris Anderson is actually a very successful NRL coach. Um, I do believe he led uh, a few of the Bulldog sides in the 80s to the grand final, to grand final victories. He led, I think, Bulldogs in uh, the 90s as well to some grand final victories as well, and then some Super League teams, I think Halifax and so forth. So, and Chris Henderson is is known for being a bit of a an out of the box thinker, but also a bit of an intense character as well, and uh, that also obviously adds to maybe the the uh you know the expectations of 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 the club i will say that if uh, if melbourne did not win um then possibly the west tigers would have been the greatest side ever because craig bellamy was going to sign with the tigers until melbourne stepped in last minute and uh you know if they had no premierships before then maybe craig bellamy could have been the west tigers coach wow there you go but mm. look uh Interesting points there, and I think let, let's turn our attention back to, I guess, the almost fairy tale of the Dragons because, uh, look, in my view, I think even though they didn't win this time around, I think the fact that they got so close did kind of lead some people to think, well, you know, and, and look, they did go through some tough times as well. I mean, the, the the joint venture kind of marriage didn't wasn't necessarily made in heaven, um, but... But I think over time, it definitely has been less of a controversial joint venture or merged club than the West Tigers has been, uh, you know. Yeah. And and I think and I think that's why they kind of tasted success eventually in 2010, even though they tasted it after the Tigers, ironically, uh, you know. But but I think I think the fact that they got there so close, I think, kind of. Uh, uh, has kind of inspired some people within the club to kind of keep going, and in fact, some of the the the, um, the players who were there in in the '99 loss were there in a coaching capacity in their 2010 victory. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, so there there is that connection there. But <clears throat> I guess the thing is this: the question I wanted to ask was, would things have changed had the Dragons actually won this grand final? Uh, you know, like I talk about with Melbourne. If Melbourne hadn't won, maybe that culture of success might have uh, had a bit of a different 
different perspective to it potentially and maybe they wouldn't have been uh had that pressure to win at all costs but tish what is your view uh if the dragons had won what do you think would that have made a difference in in the overall historical kind of flow of uh, the nrl um well i i thought about this and initially i would have said yes um because i think more sydney teams would have seen the merger being a success um not just necessity and they might have uh, maybe considered the whole um you know merging with another sort of club as a more viable option so we probably potentially we could have had a more more uh, national game in many ways because st george almost laid the uh you know read the uh you know sort of laid the groundwork but the fact that the you know, West Tigers kind of came afterwards. The Northern Eagles came afterwards as well. That was kind of sort of a, a joint venture, not really. They kind of showed that I think just making it to the grand final um, did sort of prove that. Um, interestingly, St. George misses out on the 2000 um, uh, NRL season. Um, it's reduced to 14 teams and they end up coming ninth. <laughs> so they really did fall quite, quite dramatically. Obviously having uh, quite a number of their key players retiring as well. Yeah. Uh, whereas Melbourne, you know, they've kind of always been in the finals ever since. Um, the other interesting thing about St. George is, um, uh, you know, St. George and Lawara for a long time, you know, it was a lot of people just called it St. George. And I think, you know, it's kind of out of habit and, you know, people think of them as a Sydney team, but I think that's, that's kind of almost changed because, um, you know, when we were talking about the coming back for the COVID after the COVID-19 crisis, uh, one of the proposed was to have the you know two competitions the the Sydney competition the non Sydney competition and uh, St George were the team that was selected to be the out of Sydney to be out of Sydney Sydney team I suppose and um, it's interesting because their base is more out of Illawarra these days more of their players come from Illawarra and uh, and essentially you know the Illawarra side of the the merger is actually becoming the the more stronger end of their of their um of their joint of their joint venture. So that's it's really interesting that I think it, it has this merger has had an effect obviously in St. George Illawarra, but I, I think I think if they would have won, I think the Dragons would have been a bit more of the emphasis in the merger. So yeah, I don't think it really has changed that much. Like, you know, if, I, I think that's a conclusion I could come up with, apart from maybe changing maybe the culture that's in within the Dragons as well. Yeah, I mean, interesting you say about the uh, – I think the key thing there is you said that it would have probably inspired maybe other teams to look at how much success you would get by by uh, by considering merging. Uh, we'd already seen, like you said, West Tigers and then the Northern Eagles, uh, and one of those still exists to this day, West Tigers. And I think part of the reason for that was that they got the success within a few years. You know, they, mm. they won in two, 2005. Uh, and so, you know, that had they not won then, I mean, you know, we've they haven't really made a grand final since then. So to me, it's like, yeah. the, you know, think about it. The fact that they won then, at least they've got that to hang their hat on, whereas the Northern Eagles really were doomed from the start. They, they had no success to speak of. Um, you know, who knows? We may have actually been seen, as you're right, you kind of said that, other teams may have been inspired to get on the merger bandwagon, uh, noting that it would bring kind of very quick success. 
by pooling resources essentially from two clubs together. Um, and, and you know, what, what does that do? Well, what that does is that reduces the number of teams in Sydney, which then, which is what we were talking about all along with the Bradfield report and uh, the, sorry, the Bradley report and, and, the whole point of Super League was to get fewer teams in Sydney so you could have a concentration of the top players in the game and high-quality games each week, all that kind of stuff. And and really, what what does that mean? Well, that means that, yeah, we could have had more space to then go back to Perth and the other kind of expansion areas where we pulled back from as a result of the reunification of the game. So, so yeah, I look... Are we to blame Jamie Ainsco for this? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, no, we shouldn't. But look, it's it really sometimes if you think about it, uh, it is a bit of a butterfly effect thing. Like, had that mm. not occurred, the Dragons, I think, would have won. And what would that have done to the landscape of rugby league in Sydney uh, at the top tier? And it could have had a humongous effect. You know, we yeah. may not have we may not have seen South Sydney come back with the same vengeance because. They would have, you know, they would have seen the success of other merged entities, and you know, and maybe would have been tougher for them to re-enter as a single club. Mm. And so, you know, all sorts of things could have occurred, and we will never know. That's the beauty of it. But uh, we can speculate, and you know, looking back though, I think uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a, a pretty massive and epic grand final. Uh, in general, it was an almost fairy tale for the St. George Illawarra Dragons. Tish, do you have any other other bit, uh, you know bits of trivia or or opinions about the aftermath of of this almost fairy tale? Okay, well, um, one thing I forgot to mention in the um, in my argument of maybe Melbourne would have won anyway is that they did actually come back from a similar deficit the week before against Parramatta. Um, yeah, don't remind me about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. yeah, so sorry about that. But, yeah. but look, one final thing that I did in um, sort of, uh, you know, going through this game and sort of watching it and so forth, and uh, I did actually verify it once I actually watched it, but time travel, Dr. T. Um, we've talked about the future, but have we talked about travelling back in time? Well, uh, the 1999 Grand Final has also been cited as proof of the possibility that some people have mastered time travel. Uh, now, if you actually go watch this game on the NRL channel on YouTube, and the timestamp is one hour, 40 minutes, and 54 seconds, you'll see Glenn Lazarus is hugging a fully grown man uh, who according to his birth certificate, would have only been three years old at the time. And that man is current Melbourne halfback, Jerome Hughes. Right? What? So <laughs> that is right. That is right. Jerome Hughes is born on um, 8th of October, 1994. And when you watch the footage, you see a person which – is identical to Jerome Hughes hugging Glenn Lazarus. And um, people have speculated that Jerome Hughes has uh, has has uh, been able to uh, to breach the time-space continuum. Um, wow. Has, not been, has he done it using the time stone from Infinity War? Um, <laughs> you know? 
has not been confirmed if he's gone to the uh, mountains in Nepal and uh, you know has has uh, you know has kind of met with Doctor Strange, but um, check that out for yourselves, guys. Wow. Because, because you know, tell me or tell me not, is that not Jerome Hughes hugging uh, Glenn Lazarus? <laughs> You know, at the grand final, absolutely unbelievable, Chris. Uh, you know, it was actually uh, when I was actually uh, watching it. There was, you know, the the wind became cold suddenly in the room that I was in, and uh, you know, it felt like uh, day was night, and night was day. It was it was really really bizarre. So um, check Tish, that out, guys. Tish, can I ask? Uh, look, I'm not I'm not casting aspersions <laughs> on anyone, but. Did you check whether um, Glenn Lazarus uh, clicked his fingers at all? Uh, <laughs> because he does look a little bit like the old man Thanos. Uh, I'm yes. just, that's all I'm saying. If you look at if you look at the Thanos colors, we're talking purple. He does look purple, doesn't he? As a character. Oh my God. Are we, he's all conquering, isn't he? He's all conquering. Oh, wow. Thanos, what, wow. what did they used to call him? The Brick with Eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we are going to not call him Brick with Eyes anymore. We're going to call him Thanos. Glenn Than- Lazarus Thanos. Yeah. That's what we're going to call and, him. And with this victory, uh, three teams were out of the competition. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> he just <laughs> then Lazarus snapped his fingers and uh, Souths were out. Adelaide yeah. Adelaide Rams are out. You know who else? Gold Coast Chargers out. Northern that's Eagles. Right. That's it. You know Western Reds out. Uh, Crushers out. You know those uh, North City Bears out. So yeah. Um, well, there you go. go. We'll talk about ending on a crazy conspiracy. Thanks, Tish, for bringing <laughs> bringing your A game to this uh, this episode. Is there anything else? Any last comments before we wrap this one up? Look, I, I'm absolutely uh, uh, done. Look, uh, I got to say, going on a great year for rugby league. Check it out, but it was uh, absolutely awesome. So, um, but yeah, Doctor T, any final words from your part? Like, you know, I should have I should have tweaked onto it when uh, if you think about Jerome, it's a very '90s kind of name. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So uh, now, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, this has a lot more credibility than uh, meets meets the eye. Put it that way. But look, uh, we are obviously as as spent as the dragons were on that on that fateful day. Um, thanks very much, Tish, for bringing so much interesting uh, trivia and uh, and discussion to this uh, our second book of our Almost Fairy Tale series on the 1999 St. George of the Dragons. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening and uh, and putting up with our craziness. But um, we've had a blast bringing this to you. Uh, don't forget, as per usual, you can reach us on uh, via email at rorepublic at gmail.com. Check out our website, rorepublic.com. Uh, check out our Facebook. We are also on Twitter now, so please follow us on Twitter. We've just started. Uh, and on iTunes, uh, you can check out all of our podcasts as well as on our website. And if you are on iTunes, please subscribe and uh, to our podcast and uh, put a like and review, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and uh, so you can see when we drop new episodes. So, Tish, thank you very much for everything. Over to you to sign off.
Well, thank you, Dr. Teen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this edition of the Rugby League Republic. But that's all for this episode of the Rugby League Republic. We are your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. Join us next time on the Rugby League Republic. Bye for now.